You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, MD, Lost Again, The Navigator, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When I was in elementary school, that's primary school for our European listeners, we had this large structure on the playground. Felt large anyway. It was all poles and slides and rope ladders. It had a bridge. We would have these epic sword fights or snowball fights on it. And we called this structure the New Equipment, capital N, capital E, the New Equipment. But it was actually pretty old by that point. It had been there since before I went to school there, probably since before I was born. But while I was in school, they put in a new installation. It had a swing set and one of those kind of secure zip lines. But even then, after we had this new installation, we continued to call the old equipment the new equipment because it was a proper noun. It was the name of the thing. I'm thinking about this because today we're going to be talking about the Old Bailey and Newgate Prison. See, Bailey is the old English word for a wall. Think about those Anglo-Saxon Mott and Bailey castles. That's a moat and a wall, which are pretty effective castles, even before they were built out of stone. The wall in question here was the old Roman wall that surrounded Londinium, the old Bailey. But at some point during the Romano-British period, they needed a new gate in their wall. 
So something like 1,400 years before William Kidd was dragged into Newgate Prison, the Romans installed a new gate in the Old Bailey. This is episode 291, The Licentiousness of the Place. We've talked about Newgate Prison before. When Henry Every's men were thrown in there prior to their trial at the Old Bailey. When Henry Every's men were thrown in jail prior to their trial at the Old Bailey. So we should all be relatively familiar with the conditions inside. You know, it was cold, wet, drafty, bare stone. It was awful. The food was mostly rotten. Unless, of course, you could buy better fare. Now, those who did have a little bit of money didn't have it so bad. For example, they actually had a little tavern inside the prison. You could buy a meal, or a brandy, or a mug of wine. The prices, of course, were extortionary, but if you had the money, you were likely to pay. In part because the tavern was kind of a a VIP room for the prison. It was a place where you could meet with other prisoners, where you could converse and drink and, you know, really partake in any other activities that you might wish. And remember, it was a co-ed prison. Dr. Bernard Mandeville would write in his 1725 text, Inquiry into the Causes of Frequent Executions at Tyburn, quote, Nothing but the utmost corruption can be expected from a company of forty or fifty people in a prison, who were all the worst of thousands before they met. It is an encouragement to vice that the most dissolute of both sexes, and generally young people too, should live promiscuously in the same place and have access to one another. The licentiousness of the place is abominable, as there are no jests so filthy, no maxims so destructive to good manners, or expressions so vile and profane, but what are uttered there with applause, and repeated with impunity. End quote. Now, a couple of things. First, when Dr. Mandeville is talking about the executions at Tyburn, that's a place of execution that's going to become prominent shortly after the Golden Age of Piracy. Second, just in case it wasn't clear, Dr. Mandeville is talking about the men and women inside the prison having sex. Now, this was pretty common in most prisons, partly because, you know, what else are you going to do? But in part because women who were slated for execution could plead their bellies. Were they pregnant? And Dr. Mandeville was particularly interested in sexuality, particularly women's sexuality, and in particular a woman's independent control of her own sexuality. Dr. Mandeville's an interesting guy, especially for that day and age. He was one of the early Enlightenment philosophers that would go on to have a pretty big influence on the forthcoming American Enlightenment in kind of a similar vein to an Adam Smith or a John Locke. But Mandeville had some wild ideas about human vice. Well, someone like a Rousseau was almost obsessed with the idea that human beings were creatures of virtue, at least in their natural state, whatever that means. 
A man like Mandeville, and to a lesser extent, Adam Smith and John Locke, they took the opposite tack. They said that humans were creatures of vice. Mandeville, especially, believed that it was impossible to eradicate vice from the human condition, so he thought that it should be instead corralled for the betterment of society. In that passage we read about Newgate's lasciviousness, he's building an argument that the women who were slated for execution should instead be employed in state-run brothels. Because women of such low character were in that condition, naturally, because they had unlocked their own sexuality and become sex-crazed nymphomaniacs. So why not employ them? They would be fulfilled in the brothel, they would earn a living, and they would earn money for the state. And there's a kernel of a good idea in there, but it's surrounded by so much kookery that it's impossible to get to. And that's why no one has heard of Dr. Mandeville, but everybody knows about John Locke. But he wasn't wrong about the conditions inside Newgate. However, none of that applied to William Kidd. When Kidd was finally delivered to Newgate, John Cheek, that agent of the East India Company, handed the warden, Warden Fells, a heavy sack of silver coins. They were paid, with the promise of more to come, on the condition that William Kidd be held under very specific circumstances. He was to be held in solitary confinement, but not in the hole. And that's not a turn of phrase, you know, they actually had a real hole into which they would throw prisoners for solitary. Just a big stone hole in the ground into which food and fresh straw was dropped irregularly. The men who were thrown in the hole didn't often survive. And a lot of people were very invested in William Kidd surviving for a while. Instead, William Kidd was to be kept in a room with no windows and no access to the outside world. He had a bed and a blanket. His food was less rotten than your average prisoner's, so he wasn't actively starving or freezing. But his imprisonment was not comfortable. His cell was a tiny, pitch-dark room. The only escape was a hatch through which his guards could pass him food and water. A hatch that was then closed and locked. Aside from those few seconds a day, when the light shone in, he was trapped in a small, dark, quiet prison cell. William Kidd began to lose his mind. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Most of Kidd's associates, on the other hand, men like Hugh Parrott and Edward Davis, they were living comparatively well. They were sent not to Newgate, but to Marshalsea Prison. And that's kind of like winning the prison lottery in London. Marshalsea, like all prisons in the English world was privately owned and run for profit. But while Newgate was a prison intended for murderers and traitors, those accused of treason against the crown, Marshalsea was a prison for pirates. And not your high-profile pirates, you know, William Kidd, Henry Every's men, they went to Newgate. But Marshalsea was for your average sea robber. And here's the thing about average sea robbers. They've usually got some money. The proprietors of Marshalsea knew that they had plenty of money and they took full advantage. They had a tavern, just like Newgate, but instead of a dingy dungeon with filthy criminals copulating in dark corners, it was almost like a real tavern. You know, they had tables and clean mugs and a kitchen. And if you wished to copulate, well, they had professionals on staff for that as well, as long as you paid. They had baths available for a price. They even had games for the prisoners. The two most popular played outside in the yard were forerunners of modern-day bowling and tennis. And you did have to pay for all of this, but while the prices were high, they weren't outlandish. The proprietors wanted you to pay. They wanted you to dig deep, to send for that last stash of silver. So they made everything relatively affordable. So if you had some money, Marshalsea was about the best place you could be sent. But if you didn't, it was terrible. I mean, imagine all of the awful things that we've discussed about every prison in the early modern world. Rotting food, greasy water, you know the drill. But outside your cell, there are people drinking and laughing and playing croquet. It must have been its own kind of torture. And there were a few of Kidd's associates that knew this better than most. Four, in particular, suffered particularly terribly. First, there was Dundee. Now, Dundee may have been enslaved, or he might have been a pirate. No one really seems to know. Dundee himself was not particularly helpful in that. He may have been mentally disabled. Although, I think 
Dundee was playing dumb the whole time. He spoke a sort of a broken Portuguese that basically no one could understand, drooled a lot, and in the end, everyone just kind of left him alone. Seems like a decent tactic to me. Then there was the old man, Ventura. Ventura was not enslaved, although he was black. No, he was an old pirate that had been abandoned by another pirate crew there at St. Mary's, and he caught a ride with Captain Kidd. He was to serve as the cook on board. And Ventura, without money for food or clothes, wasn't going to last very long in the prison at Marshalsea. He would die just a few weeks into his ordeal. But then there were the two Malagasy children that Captain Kidd bought back in St. Mary's. The government knew they weren't pirates, but they weren't really sure what to do with them. You know, they had this kind of almost mythic respect for private property, including enslaved people, so they weren't really willing to sell them. So they just sent them on to Marshalsea as suspected pirates. The boy stayed in Marshalsea for a time, we'll get to him in a bit, but the girl, as soon as this twelve-year-old girl was thrown behind the walls of this prison, she disappears from the story, from history. Nobody knows what happened to her. I'm sure it was horrible, but I'd rather not speculate on the fate of a twelve-year-old girl in her situation. Richard Zacks is more willing to do so and says something along the lines of, you know, a twelve-year-old girl with toffee-colored skin and almond eyes was probably worth quite a bit on the slave market. Meanwhile, William Kidd was growing delirious. Kept in darkness and complete isolation, that sort of thing doesn't take very long. They've done some experiments on this in the modern world. There was one experiment done by the British Army in which a test subject who had signed up to take part he began to believe in under 24 hours in darkness that the army had tricked him, that it was a, a trap, that they were going to leave him there or maybe come in and kill him when he couldn't see. In another earlier experiment in 1965, there were two caving enthusiasts that agreed to stay in a cave. They did so separately, but they agreed to do so as long as they could. And they stayed in there for a while, but they completely lost track of time. Your circadian rhythm goes haywire without light, and these two researchers would sometimes sleep for 30 hours at a time. They'd think they only had a nap. One of them befriended a little white mouse, her only companionship for weeks. The other tried to befriend a mouse, tried to lure it in with jam and bread, but... When he tried to capture the mouse, he missed and wound up killing it. When they got out, they were both worse for the wear. One of them thought it was mid-February, when in fact it was late March. The other one thought it was still May, when it was late June. Back in 1700, the Admiralty knew that what they were doing to William Kidd was cruel and unusual. They were having debates about whether this type of treatment was inhumane. Was it just simply morally wrong to do this to another human being? And the consensus seems to be that yes, they all knew it was inhumane. So they went to the prosecutor. 
the man who was going to try Captain Kidd. Exactly the kind of person that should be making decisions about this sort of thing, don't you think? And the prosecutor said to them, quote, I can't see any harm in it. And make no mistake, he wasn't talking about harm toward Captain Kidd. He knew it was harming Captain Kidd, but he's saying that it wouldn't harm the case. Sure would help, wouldn't it, if the defendant was a cringing, half-blind madman when he appeared before the court. Somehow, though, after a while, Captain Kidd managed to get a letter out of Newgate. He was specifically barred from having any kind of contact with the outside world, but, you know, he didn't have any money. Most historians agree that the warden decided to look the other way, hoping that Kidd would get his hands on some gold, and that the warden could himself get his hands on some of that pirate gold. But of course, we know there wasn't any pirate gold there in England, not for Kidd anyway. In fact, he had almost no one to whom he could turn. So, imagine this. You are a wealthy, powerful naval officer, and you work at the Admiralty. Your friends are some of the most powerful men in England. You've met the king himself. You have dinner with the Lord High Admiral about two or three times a year. You're the type of man that wears a powdered wig and absolutely detests poor people. One of your underlings, himself a captain in the Royal Navy, knocks on your office door one day. When he comes in, he informs you that two people have arrived at the gate outside, and they wish to speak to you. So you follow him out the doors, and there are indeed two people, an older man and woman, waiting outside the gate. The man is a huge, hairy brute. The woman is a slight old lady in a filthy apron. In fact, as you get closer, you realize that these two are filthy just about everywhere, and they smell like old fish. It's sickening. They must be here by mistake. I mean, what kind of business could these two have with a man like you? When they finally do speak up in the most low class of voices, they ask for permission to see William Kidd. Which is just... What? It's not like you've got him on you. Now, were you so inclined, you could get these two in to see the notorious pirate, but you're not so inclined. Instead, you lie. You tell these two people to ask the warden, Warden Fells, of Newgate. After all, William Kidd is in his custody. But they inform you that they intend to deliver a chest of clean clothes and blankets and a little money to William Kidd. You know, show some basic compassion and humanity toward him. But you, an asshole, don't care. You order the couple to leave and order some of your guards to make sure that they do so nice and quick. Now, that scene actually happened. Of course, it wasn't you. I'm sure you're a perfectly nice person. But that old couple were Sarah Hawkins and her husband. They were very distant relatives of Sarah Bradley Kidd, Captain Kidd's wife. 
They were the couple with whom Captain Kidd had stayed when he was in London way back in 1696. That was Captain Kidd's support network here in England. An old fishwife and her brute of a husband, fine people I'm sure, but not exactly able to do much for him. They did indeed go to see Warden Fells, but when the warden looked outside and saw what kind of pirates Captain Kidd had been able to summon, he didn't even allow them in. Clearly, these two had no pirate gold which he could siphon off. Captain Kidd, though, never heard about any of this. He never heard about anything at all. He was in complete solitary confinement. He continued to sit in isolation, in darkness, all alone. And I think it's about here that his grip on reality and time and self really began to crumble. Now, Captain Kidd did have the right to petition the Admiralty, and it appears that someone, probably the Warden, probably trying to get a bit of gold out of this pirate, informed him of that right. Eventually, William Kidd managed to get a letter to the Admiralty. Now, that letter is almost illegible. It's unclear if it was dictated to a barely literate guard, or if Kidd, losing his grip on reality, had to write it in some dark prison cell. I think probably, though, it was dictated. His petition was not grand. He asked for a change of clothes, a thicker blanket, and a stipend to buy some very basic necessities to keep himself alive. The Admiralty granted him most of what he asked for. However, William Kidd also asked for the companionship of those two Malagasy children. Now, the Admiralty knew, thanks to John Cheek, who had been to check on the old pirate, that Captain Kidd was in dire straits. So they did what they could there. They sent the boy along to go stay in that dark, cold prison cell with Captain Kidd. The girl, though, well, nobody knew what had happened to her. Still, though, Captain Kidd had clothes and a blanket and someone to keep him company. It was a child who couldn't speak any English, but it was another human being in the room with him, someone to anchor him back to reality. And the boy wasn't in solitary confinement. He was allowed out a couple of times a week to attend Mass. So with all of that, William Kidd's physical and mental health began to improve significantly. Which was good news for the Admiralty, because they had plans for Captain Kidd. But they weren't the only powerful men in London who had designs on the old pirate. The Tories had plans, before the trial was to begin, to rope Captain Kidd and Robert Culliford into a web of dangerous political intrigue. But if they were to succeed, they had to move quickly, because the date of the trial was approaching. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everyone who has recommended this show, shared it online or in real life, and everybody who has given us a rating or review, you all help make this show possible. Thank you. 
The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a Mafia History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.